15. Not fed. The Puritans and Royalists at this time were drifting rapidly apart, and Milton uses his new symbolism to denounce the abuses that had crept into the church. In any other poet this moral teaching would hinder the free use of the imagination, but Milton seems equal to the task of combining high moral purpose with the noblest poetry. In its exquisite finish and exhaustless imagery, Lycidas surpasses most of the poetry of what is often called the pagan renaissance. Besides these well-known poems, Milton wrote in this early period a fragmentary mask called Arcades, several Latin poems which, like his English, are exquisitely finished, and his famous sonnets, which brought this Italian form of verse nearly to the point of perfection. In them he seldom wrote of love, the usual subject with his predecessors, but of patriotism, duty, music, and subjects of political interest suggested by the struggle into which England was drifting. Among these sonnets each reader must find his own favorites. Those best known and most frequently quoted are, On His Deceased Wife, To the Nightingale, On Reaching the Age of Twenty-Three, The Massacre in Piedmont, and the two, On His Blindness, Milton's Prose. Of Milton's prose works there are many divergent opinions, ranging from Macaulay's unbounded praise to the condemnation of some of our modern critics. From a literary viewpoint Milton's prose would be stronger if less violent and a modern writer would hardly be excused for using his language or his methods, but we must remember the times and the methods of his opponents. In his fiery zeal against injustice the poet is suddenly dominated by the soldier's spirit. He first musters his facts in battalions, and charges upon the enemy to crush and overpower without mercy. For Milton hates injustice and, because it is an enemy of his people, he cannot and will not spare it. When the victory is won, he exults in a paean of victory as soul-stirring as the song of Deborah. He is the poet again, spite of himself, and his mind fills with magnificent images, even with a subject so dull, so barren of the bare possibilities of poetry, as his animadversions upon the remonstrance defense. He breaks out into an invocation. Oh, thou that sittest in light and glory unapproachable, parent of angels and men, which is like a chapter from the Apocalypse. In such passages Milton's prose island as Taine suggests, an outpouring of splendors, which suggests the noblest poetry. On account of their controversial character these prose works are seldom read, and it is probable that Milton never thought of them as worthy of a place in literature. Of them all Areopagitica has perhaps the most permanent interest and is best worth reading. In Milton's time there was a law forbidding the publication of books until they were endorsed by the official censor. Needless to say, the censor, holding his office and salary by favor, was naturally more concerned with the divine right of kings and bishops than with the delights of literature, and many books were suppressed for no better reason than that they were displeasing to the authorities. Milton protested against this, as against every other form of tyranny, and his Areopagitic is so called from the Areopagus or Forum of Athens, the place of public appeal and the Mars Hill of Street Paul's address is the most famous plea in English for the freedom of the press. Milton's later poetry, undoubtedly the noblest of Milton's works, written when he was blind and suffering, are Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonists. The first is the greatest, indeed the only generally acknowledged epic in our literature since Beowulf, the last is the most perfect specimen of a drama after the Greek method in our language. Of the history of the great epic we have some interesting glimpses. In Cambridge there is preserved a notebook of Milton's containing a list of nearly 100 subjects for a great poem, selected while he was a boy at the university. 
King Arthur attracted him at first, but his choice finally settled upon the fall of man, and we have four separate outlines showing Milton's proposed treatment of the subject. These outlines indicate that he contemplated a mighty drama or miracle play, but whether because of Puritan antipathy to plays and players, or because of the wretched dramatic treatment of religious subjects which Milton had witnessed in Italy, he abandoned the idea of a play and settled on the form of an epic poem, most fortunately, it must be conceded, for Milton had not the knowledge of men necessary for a drama, as a study of character Paradise Lost would be a grievous failure. Adam, the central character, is something of a prig, while Satan looms up a magnificent figure, entirely different from the devil of the miracle plays and completely overshadowing the hero both in interest and in manliness. The other characters, the Almighty, the Son, Raphael, Michael, the angels and fallen spirits, are merely mouthpieces for Milton's declamations, without any personal or human interest, regarded as a drama. Therefore, Paradise Lost could never have been a success, but as poetry with its sublime imagery, its harmonious verse, its titanic background of heaven, hell, and the illimitable void that lies between, it is unsurpassed in any literature. In 1658 Milton in his darkness sat down to dictate the work which he had planned 30 years before. In order to understand the mighty sweep of the poem it is necessary to sum up the argument of the twelve books. As follows, book I opens with a statement of the subject, The Fall of Man and a noble invocation for light and divine guidance. Then begins the account of Satan and the rebel angels, their banishment from heaven, and their plot to oppose the design of the Almighty by dragging down his children, our first parents, from their state of innocence. The book closes with a description of the land of fire and endless pain where the fallen spirits abide, and the erection of pandemonium, the palace of Satan. Book II is a description of the council of evil spirits of Satan's consent to undertake the temptation of Adam and Eve, and his journey to the gates of hell, which are guarded by sin and death. Book III transports us to heaven again. God, foreseeing the fall, sends Raphael to warn Adam and Eve, so that their disobedience shall be upon their own heads. Then the son offers himself a sacrifice, to take away the sin of the coming disobedience of man. At the end of this book Satan appears in a different scene, meets Uriel. The angel of the Sunday inquires from him the way to earth, and takes his journey thither disguised as an angel of light. Book Ivy shows us paradise and the innocent state of man. An angel guard is set over Eden, and Satan is arrested while tempting Eve in a dream, but is curiously allowed to go free again. Book B shows us Eve relating her dream to Adam, and then the morning prayer and the daily employment of our first parents. Raphael visits them is entertained by a banquet which Eve proposes in order to show him that all God's gifts are not kept in heaven, and tells them of the revolt of the fallen spirits. His story is continued in Book VI. In Book VI we read the story of the creation of the world as Raphael tells it to Adam and Eve. In Book VI Adam tells Raphael the story of his own life and of his meeting with Eve. Book IX is the story of the temptation by Satan, following the account in Genesis. Book X records the divine judgment upon Adam and Eve, shows the construction by sin and death of a highway through chaos to the earth, and Satan's return to pandemonium. Adam and Eve repent of their disobedience and Satan and his angels are turned into serpents. In Book XI the Almighty accepts Adam's repentance, but condemns him to be banished from paradise, and the Archangel Michael is sent to execute the sentence. At the end of the book, after Eve's feminine grief at the loss of paradise, 
Michael begins a prophetic vision of the destiny of man. Book XII continues Michael's vision. Adam and Eve are comforted by hearing of the future redemption of their race. The poem ends as they wander forth out of paradise and the door closes behind them. It will be seen that this is a colossal epic, not of a man or a hero, but of the whole race of men, and that Milton's characters are such as no human hand could adequately portray. But the scenes, the splendors of heaven, the horrors of hell, the serene beauty of paradise, the sun and planets suspended between celestial light and gross darkness, are pictured with an imagination that is almost superhuman. The abiding interest of the poem is in these colossal pictures, and in the lofty thought and the marvelous melody with which they are impressed on our minds. The poem is in blank verse, and not until Milton used it did we learn the infinite variety and harmony of which it is capable. He played with it, changing its melody and movement on every page, as an organist out of a single theme develops an unending variety of harmony. Lamartine has described Paradise Lost as the dream of a Puritan fallen asleep over his Bible, and this suggestive description leads us to the curious fact that it is the dream, not the theology or the descriptions of Bible scenes, that chiefly interests us. Thus Milton describes the separation of earth and water, and there is little or nothing added to the simplicity and strength of Genesis, but the sunset which follows is Milton's own dream, and instantly we are transported to a land of beauty and poetry. Now came still evening on, and twilight gray had in her sober livery all things clad, silence accompanied, for beast and bird, they to their grassy couch, bees to their nests were slunk, all but the wakeful nightingale, she all night long her amorous desk and sung, silence was pleased, now glowed the firmament with living sapphires, Hesperus, that led the starry host, rode brightest, till the moon, rising in clouded majesty, at length the parent queen, unveiled her peerless light, and o'er the dark her silver mantle threw, so also Milton's almighty, considered purely as a literary character, is unfortunately tinged with the narrow and liberal theology of the time, he is a being enormously egotistic, the despot rather than the servant of the universe, seated upon a throne with a chorus of angels about him eternally singing his praises and ministering to a kind of divine vanity, it is not necessary to search heaven for such a character, the type is too common upon earth. But in Satan Milton breaks away from crude medieval conceptions, he follows the dream again, and gives us a character to admire and understand, is this the region, this the soil, the clime, said then the lost archangel, this the seat that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light, be it so, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right, farthest from him is best, whom reason hath equaled, force hath made supreme above his equals, farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells, hail, horrors, hail, infernal world, and thou, profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time, the mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven, what matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater, here at least we shall be free, the Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence, here we may reign secure, and, in my choice, to reign is word of ambition, though in hell, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, in this magnificent heroism Milton has unconsciously immortalized the Puritan spirit, the same unconquerable spirit that set men to writing poems and allegories when in prison for the faith, 
and that sent them over the stormy sea in a cockle shell to found a free commonwealth in the wilds of America. For a modern reader the understanding of Paradise Lost presupposes two things, a knowledge of the first chapters of the scriptures, and of the general principles of Calvinistic theology, but it is a pity to use the poem, as has so often been done, to teach a liberal acceptance of one or the other, of the theology of Paradise Lost the least said the better, but to the splendor of the Puritan dream and the glorious melody of its expression no words can do justice. Even a slight acquaintance will make the reader understand why it ranks with the Divina Commedia of Dante, and why it is generally accepted by critics as the greatest single poem in our literature. Soon after the completion of Paradise Lost, Thomas Elwood, a friend of Milton, asked one day after reading the Paradise Manuscript, But what hast thou to say of Paradise Found? It was in response to this suggestion that Milton wrote the second part of the great epic, known to us as Paradise Regained. The first tells how mankind, in the person of Adam, fell at the first temptation by Satan and became an outcast from paradise and from divine grace. The second shows how mankind, in the person of Christ, withstands the tempter and is established once more in the divine favor. Christ's temptation in the wilderness is the theme, and Milton follows the account in the fourth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Though paradise regained was Milton's favorite, and though it has many passages of noble thought and splendid imagery equal to the best of Paradise Lost, the poem as a whole falls below the level of the first, and is less interesting to read. In Samson Agonists Milton turns to a more vital and personal theme, and his genius transfigures the story of Samson, the mighty champion of Israel, now blind and scorned, working as a slave among the Philistines. The poet's aim was to present in English a pure tragedy with all the passion and restraint which marked the old Greek dramas, that he succeeded where others failed is due to two causes, first, Milton himself suggests the hero of one of the Greek tragedies, his sorrow and affliction give to his noble nature that touch of melancholy and calm dignity which is in perfect keeping with his subject, second, Milton is telling his own story, like Samson he had struggled mightily against the enemies of his race, he had taken a wife from the Philistines and had paid the penalty, he was blind, alone, scorned by his vain and thoughtless masters, to the essential action of the tragedy Milton could add, therefore, that touch of intense yet restrained personal feeling which carries more conviction than any argument, Samson is in many respects the most convincing of his works, entirely apart from the interest of its subject and treatment, one may obtain from it a better idea of what great tragedy was among the Greeks than from any other work in our language. Nothing is here for tears, nothing to wail or not the breast, no weakness, no contempt, dispraise or blame, nothing but well and fair, and what may quiet us in a death so noble, I I I, prose writers of the Puritan period John Bunyan 1628-1688 as there is but one poet great enough to express the Puritan spirit, so there is but one commanding prose writer, John Bunyan, Milton was the child of the Renaissance, inheritor of all its culture and the most profoundly educated man of his age. Bunyan was a poor, and educated tinker. From the Renaissance he inherited nothing, but from the Reformation he received an excess of that spiritual independence which had caused the Puritan struggle for liberty. These two men, representing the extremes of English life in the 17th century, wrote the two works that stand today for the mighty Puritan spirit. One gave us the only epic since Beowulf, the other gave us our only great allegory which has been read more than any other book in our language save the Bible, Life of Bunyan, 
Bunyan is an extraordinary figure, we must study him, as well as his books. Fortunately we have his life story in his own words, written with the same lovable modesty and sincerity that marked all his work. Reading that story now, in grace abounding, we see two great influences at work in his life. 1. From within, was his own vivid imagination, which saw visions, allegories, parables, revelations, in every common event. The other, from without, was the spiritual ferment of the age, the multiplication of strange sects, Quakers, Freewillers, Ranters, Anabaptists, Millenarians, and the untempered zeal of all classes, like an engine without a balance wheel. When men were breaking away from authority and setting up their own religious standards, Bunyan's life is an epitome of that astonishing religious individualism which marked the close of the English Reformation. He was born in the little village of Elstow, near Bedford, in 1628, the son of a poor tinker. For a little while the boy was sent to school, where he learned to read and write after a fashion, but he was soon busy in his father's shop, where... Amid the glowing pots and the fire and smoke of his little forge, he saw vivid pictures of hell and the devils which haunted him all his life. When he was sixteen years old his father married the second time, whereupon Bunyan ran away and became a soldier in the parliamentary army. The religious ferment of the age made a tremendous impression on Bunyan's sensitive imagination. He went to church occasionally, only to find himself wrapped in terrors and torments by some fiery itinerant preacher and he would rush violently away from church to forget his fears by joining in Sunday sports on the village green. As night came on the sports were forgotten, but the terrors returned, multiplied like the evil spirits of the parable. Visions of hell and the demons swarmed in his brain. He would groan aloud in his remorse, and even years afterwards he bemoans the sins of his early life. When we look for them fearfully, expecting some shocking crimes and misdemeanors, we find that they consisted of playing ball on Sunday and swearing. The latter sin, sad to say, was begun by listening to his father cursing some obstinate kettle which refused to be tinkered, and it was perfected in the parliamentary army. One day his terrible swearing scared a woman, a very loose and ungodly wretch, as he tells us, who reprimanded him for his profanity. The reproach of the poor woman went straight home, like the voice of a prophet. All his profanity left him. He hung down his head with shame. I wished with all my heart, he says, that I might be a little child again, that my father might order me to speak without this wicked way of swearing. With characteristic vehemence Bunyan hurls himself upon a promise of scripture, and instantly the Reformation begins to work in his soul. He casts out the habit, root and branch, and finds to his astonishment that he can speak more freely and vigorously than before. Nothing is more characteristic of the man than this sudden seizing upon a text, which he had doubtless heard many times before, and being suddenly raised up or cast down by its influence. With Bunyan's marriage to a good woman the real reformation in his life began. While still in his teens he married a girl as poor as himself. We came together, he says, as poor as might be, having not so much household stuff as a dish or spoon between us both. The only dowry which the girl brought to her new home was to old, threadbare books, the plain man's pathway to heaven, and the practice of piety Bunyan read these books, which instantly gave fire to his imagination. He saw new visions and dreamed terrible new dreams of lost souls, his attendance at church grew exemplary, he began slowly and painfully to read the Bible for himself, 
but because of his own ignorance and the contradictory interpretations of scripture which he heard on every side, he was tossed about like a feather by all the winds of doctrine. The record of the next few years is like a nightmare. So terrible is Bunyan's spiritual struggle. One day he feels himself an outcast, the next the companion of angels, the third he tries experiments with the Almighty in order to put his salvation to the proof. As he goes along the road to Bedford he thinks he will work a miracle. Like Gideon with his fleece, he will say to the little puddles of water in the horse's tracks, Be ye dry, and to all the dry tracks he will say, Be ye puddles. As he is about to perform the miracle a thought occurs to him, but go first under yonder hedge and pray that the Lord will make you able to perform a miracle. He goes promptly and prays. Then he is afraid of the test, and goes on his way more troubled than before. After years of such struggle, chased about between heaven and hell, Bunyan at last emerges into a saner atmosphere. Even as Pilgrim came out of the horrible valley of the shadow, soon, led by his intense feelings, he becomes an open-air preacher, and crowds of laborers gather about him on the village green. They listen in silence to his words, they end in groans and tears, scores of them amend their sinful lives, for the Anglo-Saxon people are remarkable for this, that however deeply they are engaged in business or pleasure, they are still sensitive as barometers to any true spiritual influence, whether of priest or peasant, they recognize what Emerson calls the accent of the Holy Ghost. And in this recognition of spiritual leadership lies the secret of their democracy. So this village tinker, with his strength and sincerity, is presently the acknowledged leader of an immense congregation, and his influence is felt throughout England. It is a tribute to his power that, after the return of Charles I.I., Bunyan was the first to be prohibited from holding public meetings, concerning Bunyan's imprisonment in Bedford Jail which followed his refusal to obey the law prohibiting religious meetings without the authority of the established church. There is a difference of opinion, that the law was unjust goes without saying, but there was no religious persecution. As we understand the term, Bunyan was allowed to worship when and how he pleased, he was simply forbidden to hold public meetings, which frequently became fierce denunciations of the established church and government. His judges pleaded with Bunyan to conform with the law. He refused, saying that when the Spirit was upon him he must go up and down the land, calling on men everywhere to repent. In his refusal we see much heroism, a little obstinacy, and perhaps something of that desire for martyrdom which tempts every spiritual leader. That his final sentence to indefinite imprisonment was a hard blow to Bunyan is beyond question. He groaned aloud at the thought of his poor family, and especially at the thought of leaving his little blind daughter, I found myself a man encompassed with infirmities, the parting was like pulling the flesh from my bones. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my poor blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. Poor child, thought I what sorrow thou art like to have for thy portion in this world, thou must be beaten, must beg, suffer hunger, cold, nakedness, and a thousand calamities, though I cannot now endure that the wine should blow upon thee. And then, because he thinks always in parables and seeks out most curious texts of scripture. He speaks of the two milch kind that were to carry the ark of God into another country and leave their calves behind them. Poor cows, poor bunion. Such is the mind of this extraordinary man. With characteristic diligence Bunyan set to work in prison making shoelaces, and so earned a living for his family. His imprisonment lasted for nearly twelve years, but he saw his family frequently and was for some time a regular preacher in the Baptist Church in Bedford. 
Occasionally he even went about late at night, holding the proscribed meetings and increasing his hold upon the common people. The best result of this imprisonment was that it gave Bunyan long hours for the working of his peculiar mind and for study of his two only books, the King James Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs. The result of his study and meditation was the Pilgrim's Progress, which was probably written in prison, but which for some reason he did not publish till long after his release. The years which followed are the most interesting part of Bunyan's strange career. The publication of Pilgrim's Progress in 1678 made him the most popular writer, as he was already the most popular preacher, in England. Books, tracts, sermons, nearly 60 works in all, came from his pen, and when one remembers his ignorance, his painfully slow writing, and his activity as an itinerant preacher, one can only marvel. His evangelistic journeys carried him often as far as London, and wherever he went crowds thronged to hear him. Scholars, bishops, statesmen went in secret to listen among the laborers, and came away wondering and silent. At Southwark the largest building could not contain the multitude of his hearers, and when he preached in London, thousands would gather in the cold dusk of the winter morning, before work began, and listen until he had made an end of speaking. Bishop Bunyan, he was soon called on account of his missionary journeys and his enormous influence. What we most admire in the midst of all this activity is his perfect mental balance, his charity and humor in the strife of many sects. He was badgered for years by petty enemies, and he arouses our enthusiasm by his tolerance, his self-control, and especially by his sincerity. To the very end he retained that simple modesty which no success could spoil. Once when he had preached with unusual power some of his friends waited after the service to congratulate him telling him what a sweet sermon he had delivered. I, said Bunyan, you need not remind me, the devil told me that before I was out of the pulpit. For sixteen years this wonderful activity continued without interruption. Then, one day when riding through a cold storm on a labor of love, to reconcile a stubborn man with his own stubborn son, he caught a severe cold and appeared, ill and suffering but rejoicing in his success, at the house of a friend in reading. He died there a few days later, and was laid away in Bunhill Fields Burial Ground, London, which has been ever since a campo sanded to the faithful. Works of Bunyan. The world's literature has three great allegories. Spencer's Fairy Queen, Dandy's Divinacomedia, and Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The first appeals to poets, the second to scholars, the third to people of every age and condition. Here is a brief outline of the famous work. As I walked through the wilderness of this world I lighted on a certain place where was a den bed for jail and laid me down in that place to sleep, and, as I slept, I dreamed a dream. So the story begins. He sees a man called Christian setting out with a book in his hand and a great load on his back from the city of destruction. Christian has two objects, to get rid of his burden, which holds the sins and fears of his life, and to make his way to the holy city. At the outset evangelist finds him weeping because he knows not where to go, and points him to a wicked gate on a hill far away. As Christian goes forward his neighbors, friends, wife and children call to him to come back, but he puts his fingers in his ears, crying out, Life, life, eternal life, and so rushes across the plain, then begins a journey in ten stages, which is a vivid picture of the difficulties and triumphs of the Christian life. Every trial. Every difficulty, every experience of joy or sorrow, of peace or temptation, is put into the form and discourse of a living character, 
Other allegories write in poetry and their characters are shadowy and unreal, but Bunyan speaks in terse, idiomatic prose, and his characters are living men and women. There are Mr. Worldly Wiseman, a self-satisfied and dogmatic kind of man, youthful ignorance, sweet piety, courteous Demas, garrulous talkative, honest faithful, and a score of others, who are not at all the bloodless creatures of the romance of the rose but men real enough to stop you on the road and to hold your attention. Scene after scene follows, in which are pictured many of our own spiritual experiences. There is this lull of despond, into which we all have fallen, out of which pliable scrambles on the hither side and goes back grumbling, but through which Christian struggles mightily till helpful stretches him a hand and drags him out on solid ground and bids him go on his way. Then come interpreter's house, the palace beautiful, the lions in the way. The Valley of Humiliation, the hard fight with the demon Apollyon, the more terrible Valley of the Shadow, Vanity Fair, and the trial of Faithful. The latter is condemned to death by a jury made up of Mr. Blind Men, Mr. No Good, Mr. Heady, Mr. Live Lose, Mr. Haylight, and others of their kind to whom questions of justice are committed by the jury system. Most famous is Doubting Castle, where Christian and Hopeful are thrown into a dungeon by giant despair and then at last the delectable mountains of youth, the deep river that Christian must cross, and the city of all delight and the glorious company of angels that come singing down the streets, at the very end, when in sight of the city and while he can hear the welcome with which Christian is greeted, ignorance is snatched away to go to his own place, and Bunyan quaintly observes, then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction, so I awoke, and behold it was a dream, such, in brief, is the story, the great epic of a Puritan's individual experience in a rough world, just as Paradise Lost was the epic of mankind as dreamed by the great Puritan who had fallen asleep over his Bible, the chief fact which confronts the student of literature as he pauses before this great allegory is that it has been translated into 75 languages and dialects, and has been read more than any other book save one in the English language, as for the secret of its popularity. Taine says, next to the Bible, the book most widely read in England is the Pilgrim's Progress, Protestantism is the doctrine of salvation by grace, and no writer has equaled Bunyan in making this doctrine understood, and this opinion is echoed by the majority of our literary historians, it is perhaps sufficient answer to quote the simple fact that Pilgrim's Progress is not exclusively a Protestant study, it appeals to Christians of every name and to Mohammedans and Buddhists in precisely the same way that it appeals to Christians, when it was translated into the languages of Catholic countries, like France and Portugal, only one or two incidents were omitted, and the story was almost as popular there as with English readers, the secret of its success is probably simple, it island first of all, not a procession of shadows repeating the author's declamations, but a real story, the first extended story in our language.